Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Seeing All. We break down all the all the biggest TV and movie news, and we got so much to talk about. Everybody decided to drop news this week. We got so many trailers to talk about. Five Nights at Freddy's box office, huge amount of superhero TV shows. Loki episode five, Invincible season two episode one, Gen V finale. MCU's got a whole lot of drama, and as I said, Rise trailer, Godzilla trailer, Echo trailer. So much to talk about. I want to first start the show off today talking about Five Nights at Freddy's box office performance of this past week. It just outperformed the wildest of expectations. Earlier in the week, before the film released, it was projected to have a $40 million opening weekend, which would have been incredible for a low-budget horror film. The budget is only $25 million. Horror is so cheap, and Jason Blum, Jason Blum and his Blumhouse productions make sure it stays that way so that their film, films are super, super profitable. But those were the smallest estimates going in into the weekend. Then they went up to fifty million for the for the estimate. Then the sixty million, and people thought it was going to cap out at sixty-eight million on Friday night. Then the final number came in at seventy-eight million, and then Monday morning rose up to eighty million. That was just outstanding, and no one thought this film would make this much money. Theater owners thought it was going to be a dry spell until the Marvels released in, on November tenth. They thought Taylor Swift was going to be their only their only slate only savior slash their savior, but they got one more in town, and that is. Five Nights at Freddy's. Thank God. I did, I, they didn't see this coming. I did not see this coming. But we really should have seen this coming. Because Five Nights at Freddy's is huge with Gen Z. And I mean huge. This is probably one of my sister's favorite fandoms. And all of her friends. These are 12-year-old, girl, 12-year-old girls. And her friends are all on board Five Nights at Freddy's too. They all went and saw it as a group, I believe. And most people did that too. People went and made this an event. Especially because we were celebrating Halloween weekend. And everyone was going to Halloween parties and continued that fun at the movie theaters themselves. A lot of people dressed up for the Five Nights at Freddy's as the animatronic characters themselves. So they were like great pairing for the Halloween aesthetic with those fun, fun characters. So we had the party going effect just like we did with Barbenheimer and to some extent Super Mario Bros. Also regarding the percentage of Gen Z, I believe 80% of the film's audience was between the ages of 13 to 24. And then 94% in the film's audience was under the age of 35. So do not see, you do not see no old folks here. You don't see younger audiences turn out like this to movie theaters, which some of my peers think of as an old, outdated art form, but films slash IPs like this, and Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift and Five Nights at Freddy's just brought out a ton of into movie theaters, and will hopefully continuing that movie-going legacy. It just makes me so happy to see my generation starting to be tailored to by the movie-going, by Hollywood in general, because it really feels like we have just hit... Just, we've been hitting hard on Gen X at this point, from Star Wars to Jurassic Park to The Flash. I mean, I love most of those pro- properties, but Gen X has gotten their dues at this point, and so has Millennials to some extent. So let's, let's start, let's start uh, pandering to the new future, Gen Z. Come on, I need some new stuff. Then we got to do Gen Alpha with their Cocoa Mill and all that stuff. This opening weekend for Finance of Freddy's has also caused this film to have to have passed some historic records regarding, particularly in Blumhouse's books. Finance at Freddy's is the biggest opening ever for Blumhouse Pictures, beating Halloween, the 2018 version which opened to 76 million. That Rebirth trilogy started off so strong at the box office and they really drove that sucker straight into the ground by the time they were done with that. Right right alongside Michael, where he will rest for two years and then will be rebooted. But it's the biggest opening ever stateside and it's also the biggest opening for them na- internationally too with the film growth of 52 million overseas for a worldwide start of 130 million. That's almost the exact same as Taylor Swift and the, is the exact same worldwide opening of the Flash, which costs two hundred million more to make, again, Finance of Freddy's is on a twenty-five million dollar budget, which is insane. This is also the biggest opening ever for Halloween. Again, as I said, making a party out of the weekend by going to see the film, and I believe more films are going to capitalize on this. I told you last week this is going to become 
a new state there is going to become a new staple halloween film especially for the younger crowd after they get back from trick-or-treating um it's not too scary or violent five nights freddy's and they can handle it lastly this film has had, had the third biggest opening ever for a horror film in, in totality and in history only behind two films and those are both of the it films the first it opened in 2017 with around 125 million man that thing made so much money and the second it chapter two opened in 91 million back in 2019 they cranked those suckers out of there both of those movies did so incredibly well i hope they can do more with that franchise in the hbo series they're putting out it came out that's coming out season the first season the whole season is coming out 2025 but Pennywise is such a horror icon at this point and is the most money-making one out there. So they need to keep that money machine printing at this point. I bet when they make a Five Nights at Freddy's sequel, because you know they are going to be making a sequel, it will probably be announced as soon as the actor strike is over, if not sooner. Which mostly be because the Five Nights at Freddy's 2 will open even bigger than the first one. Because unlike Chapter 2, which felt mostly, which people mostly felt was inferior to the first one, along with the first one just having so much hype surround it, Back in 2017. Oh, 2017. What a time to be alive. I also think the second Five Nights at Freddy's will be more successful than the first film. In the same way as that they hopefully don't make the same decision of releasing it day and date on Peacock. Because that was so stupid. I know no one has Peacock, though. I do. Because, <laughs> of course, I do. I cut every streaming service. Except for Apple TV+. Plus. I'm going to be getting it to watch Godzilla. So, I'll have every streaming service at this point. So, it didn't happen putting it on Peacock as much as putting day and date on Netflix or, say, Disney+. Plus, The big ones. But it's still stupid to do it when you're losing millions of extra dollars at the box office. And also, the boost has been proven to be bigger if the film has a larger theatrical release first. I really hope they don't continue to try this because it is costing them so much money. But Five Nights at Freddy's overall is the biggest success it could ever be outside of the bad critic scores. The film did score an A- on CinemaScore, which is the highest horror films have ever gotten. It's right up there with A Quiet Place 2 and Get Out. That is like the highest score a horror film has ever got. No horror film has gotten A or A+. Plus. I mean, someone said Goosebumps, but I wouldn't call that a horror film. I got like an A. No. Highest amount of horror films A-. Minus, and this is up on there. The fans are powering that score to be that high because they are getting what they wanted. Similar to the Mario situation, where critics may not love it, but the films had the input of the original creators, and that played all the difference when it came to whether or not the fan base of those games would love it. And they did. And they brought the cash with them. Super Mario Bros. opened 146 million back in. Um, that was it was a five day opening. So you look at three day, it was 146. But I think the five day was like close to 200 million. And Five Nights at Freddy's is now the second biggest opening weekend for a video game movie at set at 80 million, as I said. Video game movies are going to become the next big thing after comic book movies. And the comic book movies look like they are crashing and burning, which makes me sad because I like them. But if video games can rise up and take their place, I don't I don't play video games that much personally myself. So. I don't really have any relation to this character, but if we make good stories and make fun movies, I'm all down. The next big one, I think, will be, of course, Super Mario Bros. 2 and Five Nights at Freddy's 2. Those are surefire hits at this point. But I think those could all be inseated by Minecraft, which stars Jason Momoa. And he knows exactly what he's doing, and I think they do too. So I think that could be a huge hit, even though it's opening up against Fast and Furious 11, which I don't think those dates will stick. But Minecraft is coming, and eventually they're going to make a Fortnite movie, and that's going to trump all these again. So... There's some bigger properties left untouched. And man, didn't Microsoft just ruin Halo by putting a straight Paramount Plus? That should have been a movie. And they should have gotten done a lot sooner because it could have been riding this wave to a billion dollars. So video game movies are coming. Horror movies are an all-time high and a profitability level. This is just a great weekend for movies. And even if you don't love Five Nights at Freddy's, at least acknowledge the fact that this has become a gateway to other horror films and other movies in general that will help the rest of us movie-loving people. We're getting more young people on board in the movie-loving space, and that makes me very happy. As for a film that's not doing as hot, uh, we got some of the Killers of the Flower Moon in its second weekend. This film did not fare so well, and it's opening weekend, nor did it do so hot in the second weekend. The film fell 
despite that A minus cinema score to a 9 million second weekend, and it is now at a 40 million domestic total. Uh, last week, I broke down why this film is still a success in Apple's minds, despite the 200 million production costs, which, so go check that out if you want that conversation. But I don't quite understand the reason it fell so hard with the good cinema score. And I think the reason it fell so hard, it comes down to a few things. One is that runtime of three and a half hours. I think movie makers need to take a step back and understand that general audiences don't want to sit for three hours unless you make it a freaking event. I was able to convince my parents to sit down for Avatar 2 and Avengers Endgame and Oppenheimer because those were deemed as event movies. Even I still couldn't convince my dad to watch Avatar 2 nor Oppenheimer. I think we're hopefully going to watch them when they, when they come to streaming or Avatar 2 I've been trying to work on, but it's just too long and too much time to be sitting there. you got to really make an event if you want my parents to sit forever. And I feel like that has to stay for most people. People were buzzing about these films, and my parents were willing to sit in uncomfortable seats for a long time because they were events. Only a few movies can do that, but when I told my parents the runtime of Killers of the Fire Moon, they either said they weren't inter interested or they would wait until streaming. I think most people are probably just going to wait. See the new iPhone just came out? Go buy it for three months free Apple TV Plus, and then watch Killers of the Fire Moon there. Maybe the new Godzilla show, and they can use the bathroom when they want. Some theaters over the weekend added their own intermission to the film and pissed off the editor and the creative team behind the film. I think it's honestly too far to add the intermission, and I know that it's going to piss a lot of people off, but as a fan of film, I, I, I don't think it's going too far to add. Excuse me, I don't think it's going too far to add the intermission because I don't want to miss any of the scenes of the film, but I can't sit there for four hours with the trailers and not use the restroom. If you can do that, I worry for your health. I know these creators say, come back and watch it again. I don't know. I just there either needs to be intermissions. We had them before, or we really, we rarely, very rarely need to make these films a song because I promise you, it's scaring a lot of people off. When they ask me the runtime, I say over two and a half hours. They have they have this crazed look in their eyes when I ask them if they want to go. They're like, no. So I, I just feel like the Hollywood kind of is in its own bubble with these long runtimes, and I don't think they understand. I know a lot of people are coming after me like it's an art form, and yes, it is, but it's called the movie business, so it's art form plus money. And I feel like also the art form is not getting out to a lot of people. This message, a beautiful message about the murders that took place of these Osage people. It's not getting out to so many people as possible because it's three and a half hours long. And I wish, I wish they would just recognize that, that at least that I wish you just, just at least recognize that the general non-obsessed movie going public around me see it that way. I just don't know what to tell you. So I think this big drop off occurs because one, it's advertised to be going right to Apple TV plus soon. And two, that runtime, both of these were huge factors affecting the legs of the film. And then lastly, before we wrap up our box office conversation, I want to talk about Taylor Swift, the heiress tour. I just want to mention that Taylor's, so Taylor's legs recovered a bit as the film only fell 55% in its third weekend to 14 million. It is now past 200 million worldwide, but right now it is unsure if it will unseat Michael Jackson's concert film, which made about $250 million back in 2009. I think she can do it because she has yet to open Brazil and a few other key ter territories. Come on, Taylor Swift, you could do it, but she's already made so much money off this film on the tour, and so is AMC Theaters. I think she's become a billionaire now, but I don't want her to keep you on a tour because I need her to go back to Kansas City Chiefs, Chiefs games because I need Chiefs win. Okay, Taylor Swift, hear me. You have your money. Go watch the Chiefs games, please. Oh boy, do we have some Marvel drama to discuss. So, a couple days ago, Variety, or maybe it was Variety, it was Hollywood Reporter, it was one of the big trades, put out an article going through all of the mistakes that Marvel Studios has made recently and full of tons and tons of, just they were slapping the crap out of Marvel. So I thought we'd go back and go right through all this stuff. And I also have the hindsight of just, I just, I binged read the Marvel Studios book that they just made called The Reign of Marvel Studios. They just put out behind the scenes look. I've been read that. So I got that context in. So I want to break down, I organize this into a few bullet points. So the first thing I want to talk about is the rumor now that the original Avengers might be coming back. They've been debating this room. So sources say there have been talks to bring back the original gang for an Avengers movie. This would include reviving Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man and Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow, both of whom were killed off in Endgame. 
I think this is a really bad idea. You could have just made a new Avengers lineup sooner, and we would not have to you know, not have done so many characters. These superheroes weren't big names. Black Widow was not a big name. Iron Man wasn't really a big name until Marvel made them big names by actually developing them, giving them great characters. What happened to characters like Shang-Chi? He could have been helpful along with so many others that we would have dropped because we had introduced more characters. I don't I just don't love the idea of reviving them. They're gonna spend so much money to revive them. How will they even make sense? We have so many good characters that they've introduced, but they've just dropped off the face of the earth. And I, I just wish they would just be more concise with what they're trying to do here and not try to bring about these characters. And then you got old Captain America too. He would have to be at the age somehow. I just it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I don't think this it feels like they're just throwing stuff at the wall at this point, seeing it sticks. But again, this is just in debating, so this isn't anything concrete. And I'm really glad it's not. Then we have Kang and Jonathan Majors, all that stuff. So a source says Marvel is truly effed with the whole Kang angle, says one top dealmaker who has seen the final Loki episode. I don't see a path to how they move forward with him. So it seems like Loki, we'll just talk about episode five in a minute, sets up that Kang's going to be the next big bad, which we knew was going to happen, that he's going to be the big bad, because they have a new Avengers film coming out and when in the long distant future called Kang Dynasty. Now I think it's 2026 when it's supposed to come out. It's ridiculous how far these things are scheduled ahead of time. I don't know if that was a great idea. Um, it just a studio notes source notes that regardless of Jonathan Major's legal issues, which we're talking about in a second, Marvel had already considered moving away from Major's led phase because of the box office performance of Quantumania, which will struggle, which struggled to make a profit because it only made around four hundred million dollars. Everybody praised Major's performance in that. Everybody praised praised Major's performance as King in the first season Loki, and I think people are kind of tired of his stick at this point. I mean, look at the Loki rating numbers; they are down a bunch. People don't like Victor Timely like myself. They aren't liking his performance here. And I don't think he has a big enough audience to be the big bad of the next film. He's just not captivating people like the past ones. And it feels so weird that Marvel put all the eggs in the basket in this character. But I also have to say that Marvel said, in the wake of Jonathan Major's legal troubles, Marvel executives discussed backup plans, including pivoting to another comic book adversary like Dr. Doom. First of all, Jonathan Majors is not Kang. Jonathan Majors is an actor who plays Kang. You can recast somebody. It's not that hard. They did it with Terrence Howard. They did it with, I think they did it a couple other times. I just, you can recast someone. It's, it's not that hard. I, I swear to God, if we throw away Kang because of Jonathan Majors, if that's there was their original plan, they throw it away because of legal troubles. And then if we throw away Namor because of Tina Huerta's uh, sexual assault allegations too, we throw those characters away because of these actors. That just, it just puts at least such a bad taste in my mouth because the characters aren't defined by their actors. The characters are the characters. It's a storytelling medium where you can recast them. Actors are, are replaceable. It's just, it's very annoying, and I wish that it wouldn't hold them back because of the actions of one. Actions of one should not have to take down everybody else with them. It's just so sad to watch. Also, it came out that CAA, the, the agency for all these actors, parted ways with Jonathan Majors pre-arrest for his brutal conduct towards staff, says one of source. So this was before he got arrested for those sexual assault allegations back in March time. He was already being quite abusive. And we saw Twitter allegations that came out, too, that people who went to school with him say he was kind of an asshole. And I mean, I feel like you can tell who's kind of in the method after space and just it just it's just so sucky that i don't know this is all crumbling down and then they didn't do a background check or something i mean we'll see how the case turns out everyone is innocent to proven guilty and i fully stand by that so we'll see how this case turns out but it's not looking good right now and if it comes out he's guilty and they take that as their sign not to move forward with the king stuff one i hope it's not just because of jonathan major because you can recast him and it's just just a sad situation to see unfold that someone has such a bright career such a bright path forward and is treating other people so awfully. And I just feel really bad. And I hope they get people get justice they deserve. Or he gets the freedom he deserves. Then we got Blade. 
Marvel is reportedly looking to make the Blade reboot, which is scheduled for 2025, starring Mahershala Ali, on a budget of less than $100 million. That's good. That's a really good idea. Make it cheap. One person familiar with the Blade script just said the story at one point, though, morphed, and led, morphed into a narrative led by women and filled with life lessons with Mahershala Ali's Blade relegated to the fourth lead. Um, how did that happen? The Blade reboot went through at least five writers, two directors, and one shut down six weeks Report six weeks before production. How is this happening? Who who's in charge? Apparently, the executive, the, like the main producer outside of Kevin Feige in charge of the Blade production, has left the studio because he didn't send off the warning signals fast enough. That's been rumored at this point, and it's just sad to see unfold. I mean, I've never been a big Blade fan because I don't I don't really care. Vampires are vampires are the coolest Halloween character, but Blade's never been too much of my favorite. I don't like the horror, the more horror aspects. I'm more like the fun superhero stuff in my Marvel movies. So I'm not really deeply disappointed that Blades might not ever come out, but amid reports that Mahershala Ali was ready to exit the Blade reboot over script issues, Kevin Feige went back to the drawing board and hired Michael Green, the Oscar-nominated writer of Logan, to start writing again. So give some hope it could be good that we actually make this a Blade movie, and I don't, we don't need to turn it into a father-daughter kind of story. We don't need to have it led by women. It's Blade. You know what you're getting? Vampire slaughtering movies. That's what we want. And hopefully if it's a budget less than $100 million, that also means they do R-rated. So I want a second, but Echoes, TVMA, MA now, and you got Deadpool 3, which is R, so maybe we can help you get some R stuff here. But Blades, crapshoot, already, already. <laughs> then we have, the sad one I have to talk about is the Marvels. The Marvels is trapping to open between 75 and 80 million, which is far below. They're comparing it to 185 that Multiverse of Madness opened with last year, but I don't think it's a fair comparison. The Marvels needed four weeks of reshoots to bring coherence to the Tangled storyline. And the Marvels director, Nia DaCosta, who's the was director of Candyman before she got this. She began working on another film while Marvels was still in post-production. The, she moved to London earlier this year to begin prepping for her Tessa Thompson drama, Hedda. Marvel, which also traditionally only solicits feedback from Disney employees and their family and friends, took the uncharacteristic step of holding a public test screening for the Marvels in Texas. The audience gave the film Bailey to review. So, I want to pack all that. Unpack all that. First of all, we knew the tracking was bad. I talked about it last week. Four weeks of reshoots. Um, it's also kind of pretty common, so it honestly doesn't surprise me. But the part about Nia DaCosta just leaving mid-post-production, she just gave up and went to go work on another film. I think she was trying to do that to guarantee the other film's going to work out, but I'm like, that's very surprising. You don't just give up on a film. And I wonder if Marvel was trying to take the step and, like, we got to course-correct this, and she just wanted to get involved. And that worries me. Maybe, hey, Marvel's course-corrected from before for reading that book. Kevin Feige, he's the man, do it in post. And he fixed a lot of stuff in post. And it's kind of surprising. Maybe they're, hopefully they'll do that with the Marvels. Apparently there's a huge cameo that I, I just don't want to get spoiled. Please don't want to spoil it for me. Please. I'm begging. I muted all the words. Please. And then also the test scores, middle reviews, hopefully they fixed it. Please. I still somewhat have faith in the Marvels, surprisingly, at this point. And I know my friends. And I'm the only Brie Larson defender out there at this point. But I really hope this movie turns out good. And I still have somewhat of, I have a sliver of hope. I have a sliver of hope. And let me keep that sliver of hope. And the last thing I want to talk about is the future of the MCU. So. Now that the WGA strike is in the rearview mirror, Marvel has started to talk to writers about bringing the X-Men in the MCU fold. Yay! But I want to get fixed up the multiverse stuff. Can we just be done with this multiverse stuff, and then let's move on to X-Men. Like, just, just put a cap. Let's move these Avengers films up. Kevin Feige's real superpower, he's a genius, has always been in post-production, post-production, and getting his hands on movies and making sure they finish strongly. These days, he's spread thin. We're making too much stuff, Kevin Feige can't handle it all. I think we need to do limit to three movies a year, maybe two shows a year. That's about it. That's as much as he can handle. And I think we need to move the Avengers timetable up. 
let's get these Avengers sucker out there because they really connect everything together and really bring the whole picture together. And when we see these characters, we love seeing team ups. This is my favorite part of the MCU is when we see team ups. I just it feels like the planning department. Then we need to just pick pause. Let's rewind and let's make an Avengers film. Let's do Deadpool three Avengers. We out of multiverse. We're done. Skip K nine and see go straight to Secret Wars. We're done. Let's bring the X Men in. Focus squarely on them. I feel like there's a lot of things we can do to fix this up. And hopefully, this Hollywood Reporter article, I think it was, maybe, I don't remember. Hopefully, it slapped them in the face enough to just remember that. Or at least now everybody knows. Their dirty laundry has been aired everywhere. Know that they're taking the sign. Okay, we need to actually fix this and take some more steps to fix it. But now, I want to focus on some more positive superhero stuff after all the Marvel drama. And that's going to start off with our Thursday night of TV, which had, saw Gen V finale, Invincible Season 2, Episode 1, and Loki Episode 5. But I first start off with the one I watched first because it came out first, and that's Gen V season finale. And I'm just going to do a whole season review. Wow. I didn't think this could live up to the boys, but it really did. By then, um, I thought this was going to go just – I I had no idea what this was going to go. Oop, I hit the mic. I, I want to go through each of the main characters, though, before discussing those last elements in the finale, finale and how this will tie into the boys season four because, of course, because boy, boy does it. Boy does it. But warning spoilers for this show will follow, so if you want to skip forward, you're probably going to skip to the end, because I'm going to do Gen V spoilers and then Loki spoilers, so just, like, fast forward if you haven't read this through this part, or if you haven't watched it. But I'll start off the main character, Marie, who has the blood powers. Um, they're awesome. Um, I love her connecting with the senator. I can't remember her name now, but I love that she can control that, and hopefully she learns a lot more. But you got her sister, who is still a threat that's left unexplored, I wonder what her powers are, because, of course, the parents probably gave it to her, at least I'm predicting, and maybe she'll become a big element in season two. But the opening with her characters and her killing her parents, ooh, that was rough. And I love that she plays both sides and she genuinely wants to be a good person. Her leveling up by the end of the show with the blood knives, seeing stuff in people's bodies, and of course blowing up Kate's hand. And I love that these characters, I love these characters, and I wanted none of them to die, except for Andre. <laughs> Even though some of them were going down the crazy tunnel, and it still made me sad to see, to see Kate's arm ripple. But it was cool for Marie. Then we got Jordan. I thought this character started stronger than they ended, but I love how they have different powers depending on the gender they are. You got the Sonic powers for when Jordan's a girl, and then you got the Invincible powers for when it's a guy. I love that the storyline that the parents do not accept what they are, despite the parents making them that way by giving them Gen V. All these parents are just so awful, and a lot of these people are really evil, so you can see where Kate and Kate Sam are coming from by the end of the show. They argue to kill the humans because they're a superior species, and they are somewhat right, and they did it to them, so I mean, go right ahead. And talking about Jordan and Marie, we have to talk about their excuse me, about their relationship, and I think they are actually really good with each other and really cute. I'm glad they, they stay on the same side, and we don't have a cliffhanger on the relationship. Then we got to talk about Emma, uh, Marie Moreau's roommate, whose storyline I also thought peaked during the first few episodes. Her relationship with her mother was, like, great and so relatable. Not to me, but I mean, it seems relatable. Um, and then you got the reality TV show angle where they wanted to exploit her eating disorder or calling disorder, but she doesn't want to. And then we got the, the the tone deaf snake girl girl that exposed her online with her eating disorder. But Emma coming to accept it, and then she goes big to stop Sam before it's too late. Oh, it was good. It was great. Then she took a backseat to protecting her boy toy Sam, and she kind of became a babysitter. But she had one of the best scenes in the finale, and that had to do with her argument over Sam killing people. And despite what the soldiers and the college leaders did to Sam, that didn't justify him killing every single human there. Emma is 100% in the right here at the end of the conversation, and she's destroyed, and this leads to her shrinking, so now she has a new way to control her powers, and I can't wait to explore that in season two. Then we have Sam. Sam was probably lower among the kids for me, because I thought he had severe mental issues. I mean, he does. He, he, he recognizes it, at least, and he really is influenced by others, and that is very annoying. You had that guy in the last episode that was like, 
soups are better, or soups are better, and then you got Kate kind of melting him, and now he doesn't feel any emotions. So that's definitely a sociopathic behavior, and he can't talk to his brother anymore, so it's sad. Um, and I like to get him and Emma together, and they kind of throw that away. Uh, also, his powers are just strong. Those aren't as interesting visually um, when he compared to the other characters. He just isn't my favorite at this point. But he's nothing compared to my least favorite, Andre, who was just a little crybaby. And I don't know why, but he just gets under my skin because he doesn't really do anything other than yell at others and screw up. And he always acts better than everybody else, even though he's done nothing. So shut up. Also, his powers are going to kill him eventually, like his dad. So he can't even use them. He barely even used them this entire season, besides when he killed that person in the first episode. And then when he held the helicopter with the ambulance. That was it. Nothing else. Which is a letdown when you have a guy that can control metal. Why are you not using it more? He was the one guy I was hoping they would kill off in the finale. And sadly, I did not get that. But hey, maybe they can redeem his character next season of the show. Or they can kill him in the first episode, which I will be very happy to see. The MVP of this entire show, though, was Kate who has the powers to mind control people when she touches them. She started off really sweet, and I believe she was innocent. I believed her. Um, Blondes can do a lot to a man, and you can believe him. Um, she revealed to be mind controlling her boyfriend, Golden Boy, and then mind controlling her entire friend group before using her powers to strike back against all humans because of Dean Shetty. Just an awesome power set. Blood, Her blood red eyes were so striking with the blue surrounding. Oh, oh, it looked beautiful. She really leveled up, and I was so sad when she lost her arm. I was like, oh, thank God she didn't lose both. Because I love her mind controlling people, and I can really do what she was doing, but also she was trying to hurt Jordan. But no, Marie shouldn't have blown her arm up. I saw where it was coming from. But speaking of Shetty, both the principal and I want to say the AOC kitchen, but the vice president that she's running with the main show, Victoria Newman, I remembered her name, who is totally based off of AOC, as I said. They are both they are both manipulating the heck out of these kids. Shetty, for more personal reasons having to do with Homelander, killing her kid and her husband. I can see why Kate and her bonded because they be they become very similar. By the time the show ends, and one the one wants to eradicate superheroes, and the other wants to eradicate the humans. And then we have Newman, who is now in control of the superhero disease. And we also have Butcher at the end, cameo and show up in the lab. They are 100% using that in Boy Season 4. And I wonder if it's going to be how they kill Homelanders at some point. That would be a pretty good death to see him slowly ravaged by disease. So we get to talk about the Homelander and, Homelander and that cliffhanger of the show when he shows up apparently to save the day. But instead of stopping the real villains, Kate and Sam, he instead laser beams Marie. And the show ends with Emma, Marie, Jordan, and Andre locked up in a hospital without a door. And Kate and Sam are praised as the new guardians of the Dolphin. What? My jaw was on the floor when this happened? But I don't love how they treated his character on the show because I feel like he lost a lot of his nuance as a character. But again, he also didn't have a ton of screen time here to develop his logic. It feels after keeping him somewhat gray, he might be going more into full villain territory. Which worries me because I love the gray parts of this character. But we'll see. Uh, the, the, the show made my blood boil, but in a good way. Like the end of season one, like the end of Loki season one, I nearly wanted the next season, but I know it's going to be a bit. And uh, hey, at least season two is coming, and the boys season four is coming even sooner. So thank God. I'm curious when we are going to see these characters again, in what fashion. But I need to see them again ASAP. Andre, no, even behind. But what a great season! What what I thought never could live up to its predecessor, but I would say if it's close, if not the same level on the, as the boys first season. Bravo to the creative team. Maybe Amazon should get these guys to fix up Lord of the Rings show that only had one great episode, and that was episode six of the volcano. But now I'm done with the Genevieve talk, and I just want to quickly, I want to do, I was going to do a deep dive on Invincible Season 2 premiere, sticking with the Amazon superhero stuff, but I do have to say, I really enjoyed it. It isn't as amazing, amazing as some of the best episodes of this show, but it's a solid start. I'll probably go through some of the plot points in next week's episode, because I might break this down weekly. We'll see. Um, I'll have to see whether or not there's more or tons of news next week. But I do have to say that the Mark and his mom, Debbie, need to talk through their emotions, and I think the emotional stuff between these two characters is truly the heart of the show. And can we please not emphasize the multiverse season. I feel like we have going, we have enough going on and just 
this season and this universe. We don't have to stuff it with multiverse stuff. And I didn't care for that plotline this episode at all. It was sad that it didn't work out, though. Oh, oh, oh. oh and last thing to say that the three best characters on the show are Mark, Debbie, of course, Omni-Man, but he's not really here. And But I have to say Adam Eve. And I hope she plays a bigger role this season. Hope she would become a, like a main lead because her powers are so good. And I really came to love her when she had her own episode. And her and Mark's relationship is far superior to Mark's relationship with Amber in my mind. Get her get her up and everywhere and let's take all these characters to therapy. Let's get Debbie, everybody, everybody going to therapy and really talk about what's going on because Mark is not ready to see that many dead bodies again so soon. This is not healthy, but hey, they're making me feel emotions of these characters like I've never felt before. So that's a testament to this new seasons. Chris, critics got to see the first four episodes, I believe, which is how many they're going to release before season two takes a mid-season break. I don't love that, but spreading spread out the love. And they say it's better than the first season, so I'm ready for it all the storylines to level up. So good start to the new season, but also I watched this episode in between the Gen V finale and Loki episode five, and this episode was inferior to both of those, but both of those were setting the bar incredibly high at this point. But we've got to talk about Loki episode five. Spoilers ahead. Are you kidding me? My jaw was on the floor for most of this episode. It, along with the other three episodes of television I watched Thursday night, left my stomach with a hole in it. Just amazing television. And after an already amazing episode last week... <laughs> so last week's episode had a lot of stuff going on. And I mean a lot, with a huge cliffhanger regarding the fate of the world. But man, did they somehow... They somewhat topped that. I would argue they kind of did. But most of all, before I go into the details, I have to say the structure of this episode and the way the episode jumped around with the ultimate conclusion, it should not have worked at all. It, it, if the writing team on the show was any inferior, this episode would not have worked, and yet it worked to perfection. This is the first episode of Loki that truly felt like Loki was a spearheader of the plot and the conflict, and this episode was squarely dealing with his place in the world and what the TVA meant to him. It was more emotional love for them. You think after all these years spent with Tom Hiddleston as Loki, his character would become overused and boring? But no, they're just making the character more and more interesting. And before we del delve into all the nitty-gritty of this episode, I just want to talk about one scene that might be my favorite in the entire show. I know I said the scene between Loki and Sylvie in last week's episode was my favorite entire show. But this week, they even had a better one. That was another scene between Loki and Sylvie at the bar in the 1980s. I'm pretty sure the best scenes in this show are this Loki and Sylvie debating because they're just going back and forth with philosophies and idea of choices. But Sylvie knows why Loki wants to do this. He isn't doing it to save the universe. He's doing it to save his friends because Loki himself is lonely. When he said it out loud, it finally clicked in my brain and a wave of sadness washed over from me. My brain has been putting that statement he just said out loud this entire season, my brain finally put it together. It, it finally just clicked all the puzzle pieces together. And Loki's just lonely and he's lost so much. And he finally has a family before it was taken away from him. And I think he really wants to be with Sylvie too, even though I think she's moved on at this point. I think that relationship's probably dead, even though it makes me so sad. Just an incredibly powerful conversation that really moved me in regards to the character of Loki. Just, wow. It was, it was just awesome. But we start off this episode at the very end of last week's episode, except Loki is the only one left in the entire TVA, and he's gone back to time-slipping. I still don't understand why he's time-slipping again, but hey, a little plot convenience is fine in my book if the rest of the show is this good. But we see him jumping around timelines, catching up with his friends friends in different times and space, and none of them recognize him. No one have any idea what he's saying. So I thought during the section I would go through all the characters that he meets up with them before talking about the ending scene with all of them together and kind of like the Thanos snap. So the first person I want to talk about with Loki meeting up with again is Ob who is a science fiction writer who is also a professor in some form of science. I think it was thermodynamics, I can't remember. Uh, but he and Loki have this really high concept meeting, and I think this is where the show can go a little overboard sometimes with the science fiction explaining, because I got, I got lost a couple of times during the conversation. And I know if I got lost, a lot of the MCU casuals probably got lost too. But thankfully, by the end of the conversation, we knew the objective was to unite all of Loki's 
all of Loki's friends and they plan to fix everything that happened while also setting up the idea of Loki tr controlling the time slipping on his own. They set up both those things. Then he meets up with Mo Mobius, who is a jet ski salesman, and isn't that just perfect for a character like Mobius? And we see that his wife has left him, he's a single dad, and has two boys, both with blonde hair. A lot of people have theories that his kids are kind of interacting between Loki and Thor, like it's some weird alternate version of that, but I don't believe it. I just, I don't want oh, Mobius to be a father figure to Loki. No, they're buddies. They're best friends for life. Um, he is the most reluctant Mobius to help Loki with at least the, that we see of it, and he doesn't want to leave his family. The conversation he has with Loki about his sons is just really good, but Loki finally gets him to come against his trepidation. Then we have the characters of Casey and B-15. Casey is an escaping prisoner from Alcatraz who seems like a thief, and he died at first, and I cheered. I don't like him as part of this group, and I feel he really weighs the team down, especially with his thieving escapades this episode, but I don't think he's still that temporal or a machine at the end. I think it just vanished like the other objects. B-15, on the other hand, has the least amount of time this episode, but we see that she is a doctor who's great at her job, and I love that she takes interest in Obi's science fiction books. That was a, a fun little note. It's really cute, but we don't spend any time with her here at this episode at all. Then we get to Sylvie, who remembers everything that happened and hasn't forgotten her memories because her life wasn't stolen by the TVA. And I love that she got exactly what she wanted and was content with all she did. It was just a perfect ending, if you could say, for a character. If, if, if everything worked out, and, and it kind of did to some extent right before it all went to crap again, she won and this was her reward. But I just talked about the conversation she had with Loki, but Sylvie had one more key scene in this episode, and that scene takes place at the record store, where she sits and listens to a great song. Sylvie's songs this season have been great, along with the great score, of course, by the amazing Natalie Holt. But over the course of this episode, we think, see little things disappearing. We saw the McDonald's disappear, and I saw it trickle off. I was like, oh, there you go. And then Loki's shot glass disappeared, and the stuff was starting to disappear behind her at the record store. I love the moment, though, when everything started to disappear, and the guy running the record store reached out to grab Sylvie, but as they almost took hands, he faded away. And then the shot of Silly spinning as a record player spin in the air and the camera followed the spinning of the record player. It was so freaking cool. Just the whole effect of everything turning spaghetti was so awesome. And it was kind of another way to do the dust snap effect, but in a funnier, cooler way. But Sylvie heads back and meets up with the rest of the crew. And she finally reconvenes with Loki, who has given up the dream of fixing TV. He was so sad sitting there, giving up after he talked to Sylvie. I was like, oh, poor guy. Then when he gets a sliver of hope, that is immediately dashed when everyone, his family at this point, turns into Loom and disappears, including Sylvie. But in this moment of desire, he's able to time slip and move everything back a few minutes. He finally has control over his time slipping, and I'm not sure if he just created another universe or he literally just rewound time because using the logic of the first season, first season, I think those versions of the characters were we were with are dead. But maybe they'll explain it more later. But as soon as he's able to get it under control, Loki time slips right back to the end of last week's episode. He time slips right back before the time loom exploded and setting up us up for a big finale where they try to fix all their mistakes that they've made. And I just gotta give credit to making me really feel the emotion and they were all dead. And I was like, wow, they got me to think they were all dead twice. Even though someone deep down I knew, but it was kind of like another dusting thing. I was like, wow, I could be killed off everybody again. I thought, look, he had to watch them all die in front of his face. I just said that, no Miss Menace this episode. I was really hope this character, I hope this character isn't gone for good. She's still my MVP for the season. I'm scared this is all, how it's all gonna be wrapped up in just one more episode. I said that with the first Loki season, I said the exact same thing, but instead of wrapping everything up, they just ended it on the biggest cliffhanger imaginable. But the creators of this season said they wouldn't end it on a cliffhanger this time around. Also, I don't think they can because I don't think season three is happening. Season two debuted with 39% audience lower than the first season. Again, I think this has to do with the two-year wait and all the other Marvel problems I talked about last in this episode earlier rather than the show itself because Loki right now is the best it's ever been at this point. Loki up survivor was great, and hopefully the finale 
can wrap it all up. Please, please. I'm begging you, Marvel. Come on, you can do it. But before we wrap up today, we got to talk about the trailers upon trailers upon trailers that came out in the past couple of days. And I thought I'd go through each one real quick before we get into what's coming next week. So the first one to talk about is Echo, the new Marvel spinoff Hawkeye, spinoff of Hawkeye, which follows the death, um, the death and she's missing the lake, I believe, character Maya Hawk. And I actually just recently watched Hawkeye because I was in the Christmas mood and that was the first thing I thought of. So I just binge watched that real quick. It was awesome. I'm really in the Christmas mood. I watched it November 1st. Hawkeye is a good show. No matter what people say, Hawkeye is freaking great. I love that show. Kingpin's is, uh, and Echo's, uh, she was good in that episode three when she had to fight Hawkeye and they had the big bow and arrow stuff. But I'm still not sure about her getting her own show. The trailer they put out, I can't believe it's TVMA. I was not expecting that. And I love the role Kingpin and Maya Hawkeye playing in this. Actor strikes. Both the actors strike like such a figure. And you see Daredevil show up a little bit. But even though that trailer was great and it's cool seeing a TVMA project, it was like, finally, thank you, Disney. Finally, give us something. After Boys and Gen V and Invincible can do all this R rated stuff, I'm glad we finally get that in the proper MCU and not the Marvel Netflix TV shows because those still aren't considered canon. But I'm still worried because they're dropping it all January 10th, but dropping all five episodes because they do not have confidence. They do not have confidence to do a week to week release. So I still don't think it's going to be good, despite a really good trailer. And that makes me so sad to say, because I'm still hoping, still hoping, and I'm going to try to binge watch it that entire whole day it comes out. Then we got the Godzilla Minus One trailer. Uh, Godzilla. It looks good. I'm a huge Godzilla fan, and I will be there day opening. Then we have the Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, which I recently watched the first two of the Caesar trilogy. I saw the third one. And then I didn't. I stopped ten minutes into it, and then I never went back and finished it. So I need to finish it because apparently this is a forward sequel. The main character is like a grandchild of Caesar, or something like that. Caesar's long gone, and it's kind of more riffing on the original. And I love to see that. It's just awesome to see John looks good, but we didn't really get a taste of the story. But it looked cool and epic. Another epic sci-fi film from 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox is pumping out epic sci-fi films at this point from Avatar creator. Love the epic sci-fi films. Then we have The Boy and the Heron, the English version with Robert Pattinson and. Willem Dafoe, Florence Pugh, Tons, and Gemma Champ, my beloved Gemma Champ. So many great, ama amazing American voice actors. And what struck me most besides the story, I mean, it looks good. I mean, I've heard it's great from the people that I got to see in Japan. But the music, the music, I was just listening, watching the trailer over, over and over again, just listening to the music. And it was really calming me down and feeling, ooh, ooh, got me in the feels. I'm so excited because I think that releases December 8th. All this stuff like back to back to back. And then they all released on the same day. I was just binge watching trailers at this point. Then we have The Fall Guy with Cyrus. Ryan Gosling as his new, in his new new action adventure movie kind of seemed like the Lost City of a couple years ago that my mother my mother and my father absolutely adored and I think they're gonna absolutely eat this stuff up because you got Emily Blunt there you got uh what is it Winston uh crap I can't remember his name the guy from Black Panther crap I don't remember his name and then you have Aaron Taylor Johnson of course and it's from the director David Leach with Bullet Train which Bullet Train is one of my favorite films of 2022 I will never die. I will die on that note that the movie is so good and I watched it again over Christmas time oh no yeah Christmas time oh it's so good. It was so good. I love that film. I'm glad. I hope this can live up to the Bullet Train hype, because if it can, it's going to be one of my favorites. And I mean, the action looked good. I mean, it kind of just looked like Lost City, but on a little bit bigger budget. So probably least favorite of the trailers I've seen so far, but still good. Then we have a short teaser they put out for Hunger Games, The Battle of Summers and Snakes. And that also announced that they the cast got a SAG interim agreement, which means they can promote this film outside of the actor strike, because Lionsgate is paying their actors what they deserve. And I love that they were able to do a fun Hunger Games press tour on this big level still for a big blockbuster because studios and the th or the theaters really need at this point. Studios, screw them. Pay their people. Hopefully the actor strike will be in over soon. Hopefully it'll be over by the time I publish this episode. 
But more importantly, besides that second interim, well, not more importantly, but more importantly for me, besides that second interim agreement, is that this in the short little teaser announced that Olivia Rodrigo is making a song for this movie. And I love Olivia Rodrigo. I'm going to see her in concert soon, but it's a great song. I'm like, oh, fits perfectly. I'm such I'm in such a Hunger Games mood. I'm in such the mood for see some children get slaughtered. And I'm glad. And it feels like Hunger Games hype is really here. And all of these trailers, Echo, Godzilla Minus One, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, Boy and the Heron, Fall Guy, and Hunger Games. Oh, all great trailers. And I'm really glad to see us getting back into it after this after strike kind of decimated all of the fun trailer watching. But I'm glad we have some trailers. And I thought I'd mash them up all here together because I've already talked enough. You've already heard enough of my voice at this point. But as for what's coming next week, we have the Marvels. Now, the Marvels has been stewing for quite some time, and there has been a ton of hate already out for the film as soon as they announced they were making a sequel to Captain Marvel. Then they added more women, and then the runtime came out at an hour and 45 minutes, the shortest MCU film, and I could use a, sh- I could use a short jam-packed film. That's what I'm hoping to get. The trailers have been pretty good in my mind, and I'm getting more and more excited as the days grow near that I get to see this film. Now, I don't know if it's going to make any money, but I know I am for sure going to be there repping for this film because I'm a Marvel fanboy at this point, and I will keep coming back no matter how much they hurt me. But they have been good to me lately with Loki Season 2, so hopefully they can keep that trend going, um, even though we talked about all the bad stuff earlier in this episode. Hopefully they can keep that trend going. Also, I love Brie Larson. The only Brie Larson fan I've ever met is myself, so I will keep that torch alive just for you, Brie. <laughs> oh, excuse me, but will anyone listening to the podcast see the Marvels? Who knows? I have to keep checking the occupancy of my theater next week. But there's nobody there right now. And we will see. I don't have a ton of hope. But thank you guys so much for listening. What do you think of Gen V, Loki, Invincible, Finance Freddy's box office, all the Marvel drama, all of the trailers that came out. Please let me know what you thought about next down below. And next week I'll be reviewing the Marvel's Loki finale. Tons of stuff, as always. So make sure you follow that. And make sure you follow me on my socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm on all that stuff. But thank you guys so much for listening. Have a good night now. Bye-bye.